Would you open your Bibles, please, to the book of Acts, the 15th chapter? And while you're turning in your Bibles, uh, the children are going to be dismissed. But then a uh, little bit later on, we're going to ask them to come back into the auditorium when we have our baptism so that they have the opportunity to uh, be part of this as well. While they're going out, if I could just let you know, we do have invitation cards available for you. They are at the Welcome Center, and they are in the um, correspondence room. No, what is that? The little room off to the side. What? Communication room, not correspondence. You can write a note in there if you want, but... Please take these cards with you. We actually have the words spelled correctly this time. And so you can hand these cards out to folks and uh, use these as an invitation for people to uh, come next week, if you will, please. All right. Uh, here in Acts, the, the 15th chapter, we, we have really something that I hope will be a great encouragement to you. And that is, have you ever failed? Have you ever failed the Lord? This is going to be a, a Sunday in which some of you don't have to listen. If you have never failed the Lord, you don't have to listen. But if you ever have, then this is going to be an opportunity, I hope, for you to see that in spite of failure, the Lord has the power and the capability to take even that which we have done inappropriately, incorrectly, maybe even in sin, and he has the capability to turn that and to use it ultimately for our good and for his glory. There are people sometimes who feel that by virtue of things that they've done in the past, maybe either as a believer or as an unbeliever, those things that have been sinful and negative have essentially prohibited them from areas of service. There are some areas in which people cannot serve who have committed particular sins, but they're very clearly identified in Scripture. And so we have to be careful not to place restrictions where God has not put the restrictions. So sometimes people will say this, because I was guilty of this sin in the past or because I did this, I really do not feel worthy to serve the Lord. And I hear that from time to time when people are asked to become involved in areas of ministry. And I think that that emerges by virtue of a misunderstanding of God's willingness and his power and his desire to forgive sin and to restore. One of the areas, and, and this one is, um, it's a little bit difficult, and I, I'm going to mention this now, but sometimes when there are problems in a marriage, if you really trace Back to the root of the problem, it comes down to this. And, and by the way, the manifestation of this type of a problem is seen when a wife becomes dominant in the home. And she is the one who is actually calling the shots. We, we say she wears the pants in the family. And the man is withdrawn and does not take his spiritual leadership responsibilities, does not take the responsibilities of carrying the, the leadership within his home, and you can trace it back to the fact that they were intimate before they got married. And then they recognize that that was sin. And then what happens after they get married is that the man 
feels guilty because generally he has been the aggressor. He has been the one who has really generated the uh, events that, that ultimately led to the immorality, though not always. You have to understand, none of this is like this happens in every situation, but I'm speaking in the majority. Majority of time, the, the male is responsible. So he feels guilty for getting his wife involved intimately before they were married, and so he withdraws, and she feels resentment because he seduced her, and now they're married, and she recognizes that was sin, and that never should have happened. And so the roles reverse. And you, you may not be aware of that, but believe me, I have dealt with people, and this is a principle that emerges time after time after time. Do you have to go through the rest of your life in a marriage relationship that is reversed in the areas of accountability and responsibility? And the answer is no. There is hope for those who have failed. There is forgiveness for those who have failed. And here are some principles we can count on. Everyone is going to fail. And failure will have consequences. There are always things that accompany failure, but... Failure is not fatal. It is not the end of everything. It is not something that cannot be reversed in its impact and used ultimately for the glory of God where He has the capability and the power to restore and to put people back into realms of usefulness. We're going to see that unfold now in the lives of a number of different people. Here in Acts, the 15th chapter, if you will go down to the 36th verse, we're going to begin reading here at verse 36. And um, we're just going to start with a brief introduction in the first couple of verses here. It says this, Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. All right. Here's our first failure. The first person to fail in this context of what we're reading is this man who's identified as John Mark, and he failed because of his unfaithfulness. If you remember back, as we looked at the earlier portion of this 15th chapter, actually going back into the 14th and 13th chapters, what had happened was when Paul and Barnabas were involved in their first missionary journey, the first time that they left from the the city of Antioch and then traveled to other cities to communicate the gospel of Christ, they had a gentleman join with them whose name was John Mark. John Mark is referred to more frequently just by the name Mark. And so I'm going to refer to him with with that name. Mark accompanied them as they set sail from the western coast of the Mediterranean for the island of Cyprus. When they went to Cyprus, they began their ministry, and undoubtedly it was a difficult ministry. It had to have been hard. They were traveling in a day when there were no hotels. There was no place that you could really stay comfortably. They were traveling with very little provision. They were traveling facing individuals who on many occasions really opposed the message that they were bringing. And it was going to be a tough, tough time. And so they went from the the city uh, on the east coast of Cyprus all the way over to 
uh, the west coast. And from the west coast, the Bible tells us that they sailed north up to a town called Perga in Pamphylia. When they arrived there, and, and the work is really just beginning, the Bible tells us this. John Mark left them. Doesn't give us any details. Doesn't tell us anything other than he failed. Why did he fail? Well, we probably are left to speculate because the Bible doesn't give us really the details of this. But I would think, and and you don't have to agree with this, but I would think that as a relatively young man, this was too tough for him. He wasn't seasoned enough. He wasn't wasn't immersed enough in an understanding that serving Christ is going to require sacrifice. It is going to require hardship. It is going to require energy and effort that has to be given all day long and then sometimes through the night. And it was just a very, very difficult time. And he failed. He went back. And the Bible tells us that he returned from uh, Perga and went back east to Antioch, the city from which the disciples were sent. Well, what were the consequences? I think you could put together a number of things that we could understand were the consequences. Can you imagine being sent out by a church and just a short time later, way prematurely to the time when you should be returning from the the call that you had, from the task that you went out to perform, how that would be, that would be shameful. You would come back and people would say, well, Mark, what are you doing here? Well, you know, I'm really sorry. I, I, I just couldn't make it. And I don't know all the details of this, but that had to be tough. It had to be very, very difficult for him. In addition to that, I believe there was a sense within himself of failure. I think he understood. I don't know why I did this, but I left and inside I know that I just didn't have the stuff to carry out the tasks that God wanted me to perform. And so there had to be not only the shame at the church, but there was also the the sense of failure that he had himself. And it hurts when you have a real sense of your own failure. Nobody likes to think of themselves as failures. But then, now there's another impact. And I don't doubt that Mark really loved the Apostle Paul. I don't doubt that he loved Barnabas. But he's really let them down. And now from a human point of view, it's going to take an awful lot to regain the trust and the confidence of these two men in general and Paul in particular. Because Paul was a go-getter and not much was going to hold him back. And I think he also came to realize that the outworking of what he had done would ultimately lead to the conflict that is going to arise between Paul and Barnabas. So here you have this man, Mark. He has failed. There have been consequences to his failure. A lot of them emotional consequences, but we're going to see in just a moment that it's going to be much more than just an emotional consequence. And within himself, he felt like a failure. But here is the power of God to forgive and to restore. As we read further in the scriptures, and it's not 
so much here in this portion of the book of Acts. But as we read further in the scriptures, we begin to recognize that Mark came to the place where he understood that what he had done was a failure and that he needed to change his behavior. He needed to move in a completely different direction. And the way we know that is by virtue of what the Apostle Paul says about him. Now, I've got to let you in on a little bit of a uh, a peek here as to what we're going to read next. But Paul is really unhappy with Mark. He is so unhappy with him, he wants nothing to do with him at this point in time. And when when Paul and Barnabas make their way back to, to Antioch, he has had it with Mark until... Paul begins to see that a change is taking place in Mark's heart and life because he came to grips with his failure. He recognized that he does not have the power within himself to do what God wants him to do. And he makes the appropriate adjustments in his behavior. The way we know all this has happened is by virtue of what Paul says about him as Paul's ministry develops throughout the years. In, and, and if you want to write these down, you can. And you've got plenty of room in your notes, so go ahead and write these down. Listen to how Paul's perspective on Mark begins to change. It says this in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes, welcome him. Ah, there's there's a mellowing taking place here. Paul is beginning to recognize, hey, this guy Mark is okay. You, When he comes, you, you go ahead and, and, and welcome him. Yeah, he failed, but he's not a failure anymore. Then, later, in the book of Philemon, Paul writes this, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. Now it's more than just welcome him, but he is working with me now. So somehow there was a restoration of this fellowship and of this confidence, and it continued to grow right into the end of the Apostle Paul's life. The final book that Paul is writing is 2 Timothy, shortly before his death. And in that book, he is talking about the things that are most meaningful to him. And he makes this statement in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Now, you remember, Paul's incarcerated, essentially. He is living out the last days of his life. He knows he is being poured out like a drink offering. And he is probably going to die very soon. And so he says this, Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Wow. What an incredible change. Did Mark fail? Yes. Was Mark forgiven of his failure? Yes. Was Mark restored to service and ministry? Absolutely. And if you want to know more about the importance of Mark's ministry, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark because God used Mark to write the second of the Gospels. That is quite a recovery, isn't it? Have you ever failed? Have you recovered? Good news. You can. 
You want to see another failure? Comes right on the heels of this one. Right here, as we go on in Acts chapter 15, we read in verse 37 again, Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. All right, they're getting ready. Paul and Barnabas are getting ready to go on what we would call a second missionary journey. They're going to go back and they're going to visit some new cities, but they're also going to go back to the cities where they had already visited and already introduced people to Christ, and they're going to check up on them. They're going to see how they're doing. So in verse 38, But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. You know, I I think there's a little bit of a revelation here of some of the um, turmoil that was going on inside of the Apostle Paul. It's not just enough to say Paul didn't want Mark to go along. It has to go on and tell us this. Paul didn't want him to go along because here's what he did. He abandoned them. He left the work. He was not faithful. So Paul has determined in his own heart, I'm done with this guy. He's not going with us. As we go on in verse 39, it says, Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. This was not just some gentle disagreement. This was a downright battle against wills. Two people who are determined to do things one way and another the other way have determined they're not given any ground. And Paul and Barnabas fail in their strife. And they're just not going to see eye to eye on this no matter what. Passage goes on to tell us this. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. What was the reason for the failure? Paul and Barnabas have failed now. They're in contention. They're in strife. Why? I think you can trace this at least to a degree somewhat to the personalities of these men, but also, I think, to the spiritual giftedness that God had given them. What is Barnabas known for? For his encouragement. He was an encourager. He was a man who was very... Uh, committed to looking at the needs of individuals, seeing tenderly what those needs would be, and then trying to meet them in a very gentle way. We would probably look and say, he probably had the spiritual gift of mercy. And so now he is going to be a great encourager. Here is Paul. Paul is in a unique situation because he is identified as an apostle. He has specific capabilities, specific responsibilities that he's got to carry out. But if we were to look at his spiritual giftedness, he manifests all of the characteristic of a person that we would say has a spiritual gift of a prophet. Here is Barnabas. He's the encourager. Here is Paul. He's the achiever. He's going to get things done. He's going to say it the way it is, and he's going to say, listen, this is what God has to say. Now, you have the choice. Either you obey or you disobey. And so these guys are at opposite poles, and now they're in conflict. And my guess is this. Even within our own church, we would disagree as to who was right. Have you ever thought about that? Was was Barnabas right in saying we should take Paul or uh, take Mark along? Or was Paul right in saying there is no way we should take 
Mark with us. How many of you think that Barnabas was right? We're, we're going to take a vote. How many think Bar- <laughs> Come on now, don't... And by the way, no abstentions. Don't give me that. Or, or, okay, I know there is a third option. They were both wrong. We're taking that off the ballot. There's only going to be two questions. All right? And I'm taking names if you don't vote. <laughs> How many think Barnabas was right? Ah, okay. Pro- oh, good portion of you. How many of you think Paul was right? You know what? I, oh, I see some holding others' hands down. <laughs> this is not Chicago. Vote early, vote often. <laughs> All right. I know, I know. We should probably cut that out in case there's anybody who listens up there. Probably don't. But anyway, I don't know who is right and who is wrong except for this. The church seems to have recognized Paul's position. Because Paul is the only one who is identified as being sent out by the church. And here's another part of this. Barnabas is never mentioned again in the book of Acts. I don't know that it's all that big a deal that we determine who's right or who's wrong. Here's what I know. They got into a fight. And it was a a pretty heavy-duty fight. And now they're splitting. I think there was another element that could have been involved in this as well. Do you remember how we read that Mark was Barnabas' cousin? Perhaps better understood maybe his nephew, but cousin. I'm not sure exactly how the translation should actually go there. But here's what I do know. He was a relative. You know what we call giving preference to a relative? Nepotism. That's how I used to get to preach at my father-in-law's church. He had this really nice church back in Philadelphia. And every Christmas, I had a chance to preach there. And uh, there were other people who were very capable, much more capable, that never got asked. And I think they wondered why. And I can explain it. It's not what you know, it's who you know. Do you have a problem with that? Before you answer that question, just remember how it is you're getting to heaven. It's not what you know. It's who you know. So, having said that, it's very possible that Barnabas, because of the relationship with Mark, chose to have him join with him. And maybe he just saw that the potential in Mark was much greater than anyone uh, would have realized. And so now you have this contention and you have this battle going on and they're, they're struggling against each other. How in the world can anything good come out of this. Oh, oh, wait a minute. I I forgot something else. I knew there was something else. This is only my half of brain working. This is where I need my wife. Can I tell you a story? Shouldn't I? I shouldn't tell this. I will. Um, We're driving into church this morning and I said to Debbie, I said, do you realize how long we've had this car already? We just got a, a new car back in July. And I said, you know, I think it's been almost six months. And she said, yeah, it's actually been over six months. And I said, no, it's been five. Um, We got it at the beginning of July. So July, August, September, October. No, I... 
July, August, September, August, September, October, November, December. We've had it almost six months. She said, honey, it's January. <laughs> what? I couldn't remember it was January. I was ready to go home and put up the Christmas lights again. <laughs> she said, honey, that's where the other half of the brain has to come into the picture. I don't know why I told you that. It's not that big a deal. But here is the big deal. I think there could have been a bit of a conflict between Paul and Barnabas before this event took place. And I forgot to mention this to you. And this was very important. It's because it's the passage of Scripture that identifies this that Luke had read earlier. Go back in your Bible to that passage that Luke had read. There in the book of Galatians, the second chapter. And if you look down... At, um, I'm going to have you look at just verse 11, and then we're going to drop down to verse 13. In verse 11, we read this. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. What was he going to be blamed for? He was being blamed because he was starting to go back into the Jewish traditions, even though he had been saved by grace through faith in Christ. He was going back into the Jewish traditions and Paul was saying, wait a minute, why are you doing this? You're, you're, you're going back into a realm of legalism that was never intended by the Lord. We are saved freely by His grace, not by keeping legalistic practices. But look down at verse 13. It also says, and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. There are many that believe that that event took place between verses 35 and 36 here in chapter 15. So there had already been a conflict where Paul had to address Barnabas and say, look, Barnabas, you, you are going back into this legalism and you have no right to do that. And he goes on in the book of Galatians to explain why. And the reason is that the salvation that anyone can possess is not based upon our keeping a series of rules, not by observing do's and don'ts, not by being religious, not even by being baptized or becoming a church member. Though those have their place and they're good, but they are not part of what brings us into a right relationship with our Creator. And so Paul goes on there in Galatians, and if you read down later in that same chapter, he goes on to explain that the salvation that we have is not by works of the law, but it's by the grace of God through faith in Christ, who died on the cross for our sins, was buried, rose again from the dead, was seen by over 500 people alive to testify and verify that his resurrection had taken place. And even to this day, we celebrate his resurrection even by virtue of the calendar that we use. And Paul was not happy with Barnabas because Barnabas was slipping back. And that could have been part of the problem here too. But what I want you to see in that is this. The salvation that the Lord offers is by grace, through faith, and not of ourselves. It's God's gift. It is not our works unless one of us should stand up and say, boy, look at me. People who are going to have their sins forgiven and are going to have the gift of eternal life freely given to them can only bow their heads in humility and say, Lord, it is by your grace and your grace alone that I have been forgiven. And I do believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe he died for me. I believe he rose from the dead, and I am trusting him as my Savior.
to you goes all the glory. Paul knew that that was the message that they had to carry. And Barnabas was slipping up. Could God make anything good come out of this? And the answer is yes. Guess what's now beginning to happen? Because of this conflict, Paul and Barnabas now become on the receiving end of God's forgiveness, of his capability to restore, and of his ability to use us even after we failed. And what happened was, Paul picked up another guy. Actually, he picks up two others. He picks up Silas, and later he picks up a guy by the name of Timothy who helped with the ministry. And now what's happening is the, the work of ministry is beginning to branch out, not among just a handful of people, but now by a whole group of individuals among whom there would be more that would become involved. And we read about the others as we did a few verses ago. I read about the people that had been with Paul and so forth. In addition to that, the gospel is now going in different directions for the Apostle Paul up into Asia Minor and then ultimately into Europe for Barnabas and Mark. It's going back to the Isle of Cyprus and they're beginning to reach more and more people with the gospel of Christ. And good things are happening. And as we read earlier, Mark gets restored and the conflict between Paul and Barnabas actually turns out to be a tremendous blessing for them. Mark demonstrates his faithfulness and Paul sees it and... Now, Paul and Barnabas are able to evaluate what's going on in their relationship so that they can get it right. There's one third failure, and I want to mention this quickly. As you go into chapter 16, take a look at this. You probably wouldn't see this right off the bat. Then he came to Derby. okay? Paul's left. He's been sent by the churches. He came to Derby and Lystra. Do you remember what happened in Derby and Lystra to Paul? He got stoned there. Do you remember? The, the people who didn't believe dragged him out of the city and they stoned him and left him for dead. Not a great place to be. But it says, Then he came to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went through the the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determining determined by the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem. You remember, they made a suggestion to the churches, four things. Don't become involved in sexual immorality. Don't eat meat that's been offered to idols. Don't eat that which is strangled. And don't drink blood. Those were, those were uh, evidences of paganism. And he's saying, stay as far away from paganism as you possibly can. And so he goes on and says, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Where's the failure? The failure is with Eunice. Eunice failed because of her disobedience. And the failure came about because in this text, and let me summarize this for you. I have the references here if you, if you want them later on. But the, the scriptures of old under which Eunice was living until the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ all indicated that for a Jewish individual... They were not to marry someone who was not part of that covenant people that God had set apart for himself. The Jews were not to marry Gentiles because 
God knew that the Jews would be drawn away by the paganism of the Gentiles. Here's Eunice. She disobeyed what God had to say. She married a Greek or a Gentile. Um, what was the consequence of that? The Bible doesn't tell us, but I would suspect that the consequence of that mixed marriage would probably be very similar to the marriage that would exist today between a believer and an unbeliever. There wouldn't be the same values. There wouldn't be the same goals. There wouldn't be the same uh, focus on things that are eternal as opposed to the focus on things that are temporal and are fading away. There would be a divided home related to the children. There would be all kinds of problems that would exist because of this disobedience. And the consequences of that could be very, very difficult, except God, in his mercy, looked upon this woman Eunice and for his own purposes set her aside and drew her to Christ. When did this happen? My guess would be on Paul's first missionary journey when he had gone to the cities and presented Christ. But here's what's really neat. Her son also believed. And we find out later that her mother had believed. We're not told anything about the husband. We, he just fades from view. We, we have no knowledge of what happened to him spiritually. But here's what God did to a woman who failed in disobedience. She came with repentance. And she agreed with God that what she had done was wrong. And she accepted Christ as her Savior. And now Paul looks at her son and says, God's hand is on this guy. I really would like him to go with us. And later in the ministry of the Apostle Paul, Timothy is there time after time after time until God sets him apart to be a pastor of a church in Ephesus. And then Paul writes two letters to him that tell him the way pastors ought to behave. First and second Timothy. That's what they were can God take failure and turn it around in the life of one who has failed and make them great servants for him? Yes. You know what's great about this? I have failed. And I know that there is a God of mercy who does not honor a plan to fail and then presume upon him for mercy but when I fail, there is a God to whom I can go and I can confess that failure, I can confess that sin, no matter how bad it is, and know that by the blood of Christ my sin is forgiven and I can be restored to a place of usefulness. Nobody should say, God could never use me because of what I've done in the past. Do you know what God would rather have you do? Deal with it. The Bible says, Whoso confesses and forsakes his sin shall have mercy. Anybody here need mercy? I do. You don't have to raise your hands. I do. This is not a vote. Because here's the thing. Even if you had your hand down, you're lying. 
I need God's mercy. And I know a God who is merciful. A God who loved me enough that he gave his son to die for me so that I could be used for his honor and his glory. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to have your word to rely upon, to know that it is truth, to know that you never fail, to know that you always do what is right, and to know that because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, my worst sins, my worst failures can be forgiven and I can be restored to a place of usefulness. And Father, I want to thank you that you have allowed me to be part of your work. I want to thank you for each person that's here today. And Father, you know the spiritual needs that are represented in their lives, and I pray that you would just satisfy every one of those needs according to your will. For those who need the Savior, I pray that they would come and trust him today. For those who feel that they have failed, I pray, Father, that they would be able to bring before you with a repentant heart the sin that they've committed, the failure that they've experienced, and leave it with you. Father, we referred earlier to marriages that are not what they should be because of sin, perhaps because uh, of sin that took place before the couple was married. I am so thankful, Father, that that is not a sin that is unforgivable. But I'm thankful that we can receive your forgiveness and then have our homes built the proper way. We can receive your forgiveness and have our church built the proper way. For all of this, I thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.